Last Sunday, we looked at a few verses in the book of Titus. Today, we are going to return to our study of the book of Mark. So please turn with me in the Word of God, the 11th chapter of the book of Mark. Uh, The Lord Jesus is staying in the town of Bethany, close to the city of Jerusalem. And on three consecutive days, he walks from Bethany to Jerusalem to visit the temple. And so on Sunday, he makes the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, enters the temple, and he inspects the temple. Takes a look around to see what's going on. And we read of that visit in the first 11 verses of chapter 11. That's Sunday. On Monday... He visits the city again. He visits the temple yet again. And we read of this visit beginning in verse 12, and it concludes in verse 19. This time he does not inspect the temple. He actually cleanses the temple. He overturns the tables and the chairs and ushers out of the temple all of the, uh, the rabble, we might call of them, all of them who had turned the temple into a marketplace. And then on Tuesday, he visits Jerusalem for a third time, again making the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem and again entering the temple. And we read of this visit beginning in verse 20 of chapter 11. And it continues right through the remainder of chapter 11, all the way through chapter 12, all the way through chapter 13. Right to the end of the chapter, that would be verse 37. And then look at what we read in the first verse of chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover. That is Wednesday. And so we have Sunday, first 11 verses of chapter 11. We have Monday, verses 12 through 19 of chapter 11. And then we have Tuesday, from verse 20 of chapter 11, all the way to the end of chapter 13. And according to what we read in the book of Mark, according to what we read in the four gospel accounts, this is by far the busiest of the days. And so this day, Tuesday, is going to occupy our attention. It is going to be be the focus of our attention for the next six, seven, perhaps eight Sundays as we enter into these verses and discern the word of the Lord and hear the message of the word of the Lord. For today, we're going to focus on verses 20 through 25. And so follow along as I read this portion, this passage for us. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now the last verse I read is verse... 25. If you're reading from the English Standard Version, which is the version I'm reading from, and if you glance down to the end of verse 25 and you look at the start of the next verse, what number do you see? 
27. What happened to 26? Uh, Verse 26 is not found in some of the oldest, most reliable uh, manuscripts uh, of the New Testament. And so the ESV translators decided it was best to leave the verse out. Uh, The verse simply states, If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you your trespasses, your sins. And so what we actually have, verse 25 parallels uh, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. Verse 26 parallels the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. And so it is likely that verse 26, which you have, depending on which translation you're using, it is likely that that verse was included in the margin of, of some of the manuscripts because the scribe had in mind what the Lord Jesus does declare in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have verse 26 in your Bible, do not worry about it. It's entirely biblical. Uh, what is taught there is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not likely found in this precise context, but certainly found as we have it in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 15. For now, back up to the top, verse 20. What do we read? Jesus and his disciples, for the third time, it's now Tuesday. He's visited the temple on Sunday. He has visited the temple on Monday. Each time he has returned to Bethany. Now it is Tuesday. They're leaving Bethany, heading back to Jerusalem. He's going to visit the temple again. The first time he visited the temple on Sunday, he inspected it. The second time he visited the temple on Monday, he cleansed it. This third visit, when we come to chapter 13, what is he going to do? He is going to curse the temple. And he is going to foreshadow, foretell of the coming destruction in the terrible day of the Lord. But there's lots that happens, transpires before the 13th chapter. And so as they're making this journey again from Bethany to Jerusalem to the temple, they pass by this fig tree which has withered away to its roots. It is the fig tree which the Lord Jesus cursed on his second visit to the temple. And so we read of that in verses 12 through 14. And it is a case of symbolic action. The Lord Jesus has visited the temple. And what, he has seen, what has he seen? He has seen, he has witnessed a beehive of activity. A flurry of activity. From all external appearances, it seems as though Israel has vitality. It seems as though the religion of Israel has life. But as he has visited the temple and he has looked beyond the external beehive of activity, what has he found? Fruitlessness. That in actual fact, there is no vitality to the religion. In actual fact, there is no life. And so he comes across this fig tree. On this fig tree, there are plenty of leaves. When there are leaves, there ought to be edible fruit on the fig tree. He goes, he inspects it. He does not find any edible fruit. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Lots of leaves. The appearance of life. But in actual fact, its religion is spiritually barren. And so he curses the fig tree as a prelude to his cursing of the temple and his cursing of the nation of Israel, which is coming in the 13th chapter. And so that's what's happened. Peter sees the fig tree, verse 21. He remembers exactly what had happened on the previous day. Rabbi, look. It's a look of amazement. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And the Lord Jesus seizes the opportunity to make a promise. He answers them, verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, it is quite possible, and I lean this way, I'm inclined this way, it is quite possible that the Lord Jesus is still thinking and is still speaking in terms and in the context of the symbolic action. The fig tree, lots of leaves, no fruit, represents the nation of Israel. Jesus curses the fig tree, just as he is about to curse the temple and foreshadow and foretell of its coming destruction. Now he says to the disciples, if you pray for this mountain to lift up and to be thrown into the sea, it will happen. It is quite possible he is still speaking in terms of symbolic action. Because when we go back into the Old Testament, And in particular, when we go back, for example, to the book of Daniel, we discover that the mountain represents, symbolizes what? Universal power. The sea represents what in the book of Daniel? The nation. And so it is entirely possible that the Lord Jesus is still building on this symbolic action. That just as I have cursed this fig tree, pointing to the fact that Israel is about to be cut off, I want you to understand this, that you, my disciples, are about to be involved in something far greater. You are going to be used for this great mountain being lifted up and cast into the sea, which is what? The casting of the mountain into the sea symbolizes the triumph of Christ's kingdom among the nations. And so the entire thing is prophetic. The entire symbolic action is a revelation of what is about to happen the cutting off of the nation of Israel, the cutting off, as Paul tells us in Romans 11, of the natural branches and the grafting in of the wild branches and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ among the nations through the ministry and through the prayers in particular of the apostles themselves. Now, I lean that way and it's entirely possible. I can't state it emphatically. But the Lord Jesus does state something emphatically here in this verse. He seizes the opportunity granted by the fig tree and the withered fig tree in response to his cursing of it. In other words, in response to his prayer, he seizes the opportunity to again teach his disciples concerning the nature of prayer. He has done this on on multiple occasions before, most familiar to us, the Lord's Prayer. As we have it, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. We all know the Lord's Prayer. That actually isn't the Lord's Prayer. It is the disciples' prayer. It is the Lord teaching his disciples how to pray. And so he takes the opportunity now in response to what Peter says to again teach them concerning the nature, the essence of prayer. And in particular, he points them to the fact, he promises them that through prayer they will, or their prayers rather, will move what? Mountains. And so he is speaking of mountain-moving prayer. And what he does in verses 24 and 25 is he reveals, he's teaching his disciples, and by extension he is teaching us, He reveals what are the two essential ingredients, non-negotiable. These are essential ingredients of mountain-moving prayer. And so, brother, sister, you want to move mountains? I'm not suggesting for one moment after the meeting we gather around Chalk Mountain 
hold hands, pray, expect it to be elevated and thrown into Lake Granbury. That's not the road we're going down here. I'm speaking of accomplishing great things, God accomplishing great things through the instrumentality of our prayers, mountain-moving prayers. There are two absolutely essential, non-negotiable ingredients. Ingredient number one, verse 24, is faith. The Lord Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, notice this phrase, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Many have stumbled over that phrase. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. Many have built a false, misleading paradigm upon that phrase. Many have founded ministries and churches upon a gross misinterpretation and application of that phrase. What does the Lord Jesus mean when he promises, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours? In other words, what does he mean precisely narrowing right in, focusing on those few words? What does he mean when he says that we must believe that we have received? What does it mean to believe that I have received? I think the Apostle Paul, Scripture answers this from beginning to end. The Apostle Paul answers it very clearly in Romans chapter 4, verse 18. In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul, just this, this, this beautiful phrase, he says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. That's a fantastic phrase. Romans 4, 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Now notice three things. First is, Abraham believed. What did Abraham believe? In the context, Abraham believed God's promise. In particular, God's promise concerning a son. God promised Abraham that he would give him a natural son. That is the promise. Abraham believed it. But notice secondly that Abraham believed it against hope. What does that mean? Abraham was a realist. And Abraham took a good, long, hard look around, and in particular, he looked at his, old, his own body, and he realized, I'm an old man. He looked at his wife's, Sarah's body, recognized her barrenness, and yet he believed against what was humanly impossible. He believed, contrary to his circumstances, he believed against hope. The third thing I want us to notice in that verse is this. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Because in addition to contemplating the condition of his own body and the condition of Sarah's body, Abraham contemplated and considered his God. And he meditated upon the power of God, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he meditated and reflected and considered the faithfulness of God. Having considered his God, having considered his own circumstances, and having before him being fixed on the promise of God, In hope, Abraham believed against hope. And we read in verse 21 that having considered all of this, it is Romans 4, verse 21, Abraham was fully convinced. Abraham was confident. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, friends, that is faith. It is the conviction. 
It is the confidence that God is able to do what he has promised. That is not most people's working definition of faith. Today, for the vast majority of people, when they hear the word faith, what they mean is this. I have the conviction that anything can happen. That is not faith. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not the conviction that anything can happen. Biblical faith is the conviction, the full confidence, that what God has promised will happen. Faith must have an object. God and the promises of God. Wrenched from the promises of God, faith does not exist. This is disheartening and this is discouraging. Because the vast majority of people, when they talk about faith and their faith and their understanding of faith, they're actually describing something that is antithetical to Scripture. They're describing something that's actually non-existent. It doesn't exist. There is no faith apart from the promises of God. Faith must have an object. Faith must be fixed on something. The revealed Word of God. God has spoken. God has promised In hope, against hope, Abraham believed. That is precisely what the Lord Jesus is promising here in the 24th verse of Mark 11. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. To believe that we have received it is to be fully confident that God is able and willing to do precisely what he has promised. Nothing more, nothing less. John states it as follows. This is the confidence. Here's that word again. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let me repeat that. That's 1 John 5, 2 and 3. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so to believe that we have received is to be fully confident that God is able to do what he has promised. To put it another way, to believe that we have received is to pray in accordance with the will of God as revealed in the word of God. Now, there are three reasons why that is so important. Let me give them to you. The first is this. Uh, That magnifies God. It puts him on the throne. Jesus warns in Matthew 5, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need Before you, ask him. I think it was Don Carson who said, all prayer has an underlying theology. Did you catch that? All prayer has an underlying theology. Sadly, far too often, our prayers reveal a deficient theology. And here the Lord Jesus is rebuking what we can only describe as babbling in prayer. Uh, This idea, we're, we're guilty of babbling in prayer when we actually think our prayers somehow inform God. We're we're bringing something to the light. 
by way of informing God. Were you aware of this, Lord? Or or were you aware of this situation, Lord? This idea that we're informing him. Or we're guilty, secondly, of babbling in prayer when we actually think we're influencing God. And if I just get the words down right, or say it often enough, and if I'm just fervent enough, and if there are enough of us, then somehow we'll get God's attention. Somehow God will be compelled to act. Somehow God won't be able to help himself, but will grant us what it is, what it is we want. That isn't, that, that isn't prayer rooted on a biblical understanding of faith. Uh, that is prayer masked as semi-paganism. That is prayer masked, dare I say it, as, as pseudo-Christianity. We do not approach God in prayer as if he were some impersonal force that we must unleash through our prayers. That he's some sort of reluctant God whose attention we must get through our prayers. That he's some sort of power source that we must tap into, and the way in which we tap into it is through prayer. No. When we come to God in prayer, we recognize that God is on the throne. We recognize that God already knows what we need before we ask him. We recognize that God is seated in the throat in the heavens above. We recognize that the earth is but his footstool. We recognize that God's will is always done among men. We are not coming to some impersonal force seeking to manipulate him or change him or influence him. We are coming to an almighty king. And the purpose of prayer is not to bring that almighty king into the sphere of what we want under our influence. No, the purpose of prayer is to bring our will into alignment with his will. Again, hear the words of John. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Let me give you a second reason why this is so important. It roots prayer in God's word. It roots prayer in God's word. To believe that we have received, to pray believing that we have already received it, is to be fully confident that God is able and willing to do precisely what he has promised. Therefore, to pray is to pray in accordance with God's promises. Therefore, to pray is in accordance, is to pray in accordance with God's word. I get disturbed by it, and, and I don't doubt for a moment that should the Lord tarry, love that phrase, should he tarry, that uh, generations from now, believers will look back on, on our generation and have a number of problems and issues with us. We won't go into that right now. But I think one of the issues future generations will have with, with us is what is now a widely accepted fundamental error among Christians. It is this, the separation of the Spirit and the Word. The separation of the Spirit and the Word. And so it's a given. It's a given, and I apologize if I offend you in my demeanor. I don't apologize if my words and my truths offend you. Be offended. But what we have today, and it's just accepted, de facto, are people following their hunches, their feelings, their um, the seat of their pants, basically, 
whatever they feel at one particular moment, what they perceive to be their insights, uh, what they perceive to be their, their intuition, and daring to label it the Spirit of God. There is no separation between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. To pray in the Spirit is to pray the Word. To pray in the Spirit is to pray according to the Word. To hear the voice of God is to be immersed in the Word of God. That's why this is so important. It roots prayer in God's Word. John Bunyan warns, Prayer it is when it is within the compass of God's Word. Now, his word's not mine, though I do agree with him. It is blasphemy, or at best, vain babbling, when our petitions fall outside the Bible. Let me repeat that. Prayer it is when it is within the compass of God's word. It is blasphemy, or at best, vain babbling, when our petitions fall outside the Bible. Now, basically... When we try to get into the nitty-gritty, I'm really, I'm really after your minds this morning. And when we try to understand this and we take this to heart, we recognize that the implications of that. It really means that there are three kinds of prayers, right? Or we can speak in terms of three categories. Uh, there are prayers which are fixed upon specific promises in God's Word. And so we turn, for example, to the book of James, chapter 1, the fifth verse, and there James is speaking of, 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 of this reality that as believers we fall into all sorts of trials. We fall into all sorts of affliction. And then there's this wonderful promise, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives bountifully, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Christian, that is a specific promise. That if you're in the midst of affliction right now, if you're struggling and suffering in the midst of a trial right now, you have this very promise from God that if you ask Him for wisdom, He will give it to you without reproach. He will give it to you bountifully. It will be given to you. It is a promise. We pray that promise. We turn it back to God and He answers it. But you see, there are the second category of prayers in Scripture. A prayers that rest, that are fixed, not on specific promises in God's word, but prayers that are fixed on what we might term general promises in God's word. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 6, I believe it's verse 33. The Lord Jesus exhorts us, he tells us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. What things? In the context, he's speaking about material needs. And the Lord Jesus is warning us that we are not to be preoccupied with material needs. We're not to run around like chickens with our heads cut off. There's a mental image that will stay with you for the rest of the day. We're not to run around just seeking this, that, and the next thing and worried about what happens and transpires here in terms of material needs and earthly things. No, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is to be our priority. That is, is what we are to seek after and follow after and long after. And God will take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. That is a general promise. We aren't given specifics. All we are assured of is that God is concerned about our material needs. And so if I'm lonely, 
Yeah, I have a general promise to pray for friends. It's a need. I'm suffering persecution. I have a promise, a general promise. Okay, I can pray for peace. If I don't have a home, a roof over my head, I can pray for, the God, for God to provide shelter. If I'm hungry, I can pray for him to provide food. If I'm tired and weary, I can pray for him to, to provide rest. If I'm, if I'm longing for children, I can pray for him to, to give children. If I'm looking for a spouse, I can pray for him to give a spouse. There is a promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will take care of the rest. He will add all of these things unto you. But it's a general promise, meaning what? We recognize that God might not necessarily answer that prayer. He will answer it. But he might not necessarily answer it as we expect or envision. He will answer it in accordance, yes, with his infinite power. He will answer it in accordance with his infinite wisdom. He will answer it in accordance with his care for us as his heavenly father, knowing what is best for us and knowing what most of the time we really don't know exactly what we need. He knows what we need. He knows what we really need. And we have this assurance, we have this promise that if we just, first things first, kingdom of God, his righteousness. As the psalmist says, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Do not reverse that. First things first, delight yourself in the Lord. That's what we are to be preoccupied with. That's what we are to be concerned about. And we have this wonderful assurance that we can pray for, yes, in accordance with our material needs as we perceive them. And we have this wonderful promise that God will answer through the best means with our best in view. You see, it also means, implies, that there's a third category of prayer. There is, firstly, prayer fixed upon specific promises. There is prayer fixed upon general promises. And there is prayer, which really isn't prayer, but we hear it a lot. Prayer completely detached from promises. Completely detached from the Word of God. And so James warns, book of James, chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passion. In other words, this is prayer which exceeds or moves beyond the bounds of God's word. Moves beyond the bounds, the parameters of God's promises. Now, wrong prayer, there's three ways to pray wrongly. I I can pray wrongly in terms of my request, what it is I'm asking. I have moved well beyond the bounds of God's word. If I pray and ask God to cause me to win the lottery, I don't play the lottery, but it would be a wonderful miracle. Make me win the lottery. Make me rich. Give me a Bentley. I have moved well beyond the bounds of God's word. Or make the Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup. It's been 44 years. Long, tiresome drought. Pray for this. I, I I have entered into the realm of presumption, way beyond the bounds of God's word in terms of my request. I pray wrongly when my request in and of itself might be right, but the motive behind it is well beyond the bounds of Scripture. And so we pray, I pray, uh, Lord, bless the ministry in which I'm involved. That's a great prayer request, isn't it? Depends on the reason for which we're praying it. Lord, bless my ministry. In other words, cause it to grow. I'm not going to say this, but deep down inside, here's what I'm thinking, so that people know how good I am. 
if not how downright great I am. The request is good, but the motive has moved beyond the bounds of Scripture. We pray wrongly when the request is right. Uh, The motive is maybe perhaps a bit mixed, but our desire is all wrong. And so we're praying for something, we're seeking something from God when in in and of itself it's good. Uh, We're praying for restored health, or we're praying for, for children, or we're praying for a spouse. But our desire for these things has moved beyond the bound of Scripture, whereby these things, that which we are requesting, these things now control us. These things now consume us to such a degree that the object of our prayer has actually become an idol in our hearts. And for God to answer that prayer would simply be for God to feed our idolatry. You understand that, Christian? We pray wrongly when our request is well beyond the bounds of Scripture, our motive is beyond the bounds of Scripture, and our desire is beyond the bounds of Scripture. The third lesson we learn from 1 John 5 in the nature of true faith and the nature of true prayer is this. We see what it really looks like. Let me describe it in three ways. First, to believe that we have received is to pray for obedience to submit to what God decrees. Let me repeat it. To believe that we have received is to pray for obedience to submit to what God decrees. Job states, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Similarly, we pray that we might willingly submit to what God decrees. When God decrees sickness, it means that sickness is better than health. When God decrees weakness, it means that weakness is better than strength. When God decrees reproach, it means, necessarily means, that reproach is better than honor. When God decrees poverty, poverty is better than wealth. When God decrees persecution, persecution is better than peace. When God decrees death, Death is better than life. Now, I have to ask you, I have to ask me, do we really believe that? Do we really accept that? Do we really live like that? No, if we're honest with ourselves. And therefore, we must pray to believe that we have received is to pray for obedience to submit to what God decrees. Secondly, what does it really look like? To believe that we have received is to pray for obedience to obey what God commands. Commands us to love one another, whether we feel like it or not. He commands us to abstain from evil, to pursue righteousness, to submit to those in authority over us, to be patient and humble, to love our spouse, to share with those in need, to make disciples, to abstain from immorality, to resist the evil one, to be faithful stewards and diligent servants, to forgive one another, and on and on and on it goes. My problem is this. 
I don't feel like doing any of those things, to be perfectly honest. Everyone, it's an amazing thing, every one of God's commands as revealed in Scripture, I feel, I find them to be completely antithetical to what I am in the flesh and what I'd really like to do sometime. I find that there is no good in me. I find that in my flesh there is absolute enmity toward the will of God. And therefore I must pray. To believe that we have received is to pray for obedience to obey what God commands. And thirdly, the third mark, to believe that we have received is to pray for obedience to cherish what God promises. William Grinnell says, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed. Prayer is nothing but the promise reversed. God promises in prayer, we simply reverse it. He says, prayer is nothing but God's word formed into an argument and retorted by faith upon God again. God promises to impart wisdom in the midst of trials. He promises to give peace in the midst of all circumstances. He promises to forgive when we confess our sins. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He promises to abide in us. He promises to raise us from the dead. He promises to crush the devil, build his church. He promises to work all things together for our good. He promises to complete the work he has started in us. He promises to take us as his everlasting possession. Do we cherish these promises? Do these promises impart strength when we are weak? Do these promises impart joy when we are downcast? Do these promises impart hope when we are discouraged? If not, we must pray. Are we getting the idea? I trust you're seeing something which is actually radically different from the context in which many of us grew up in our understanding of the nature of prayer. To pray, believing that we have received, is to be fully confident that God is able and he will do what he has promised to do. Prayer is in accordance with the word of God. Praying in the spirit is praying the word of God. What will it look like? We pray for obedience to submit to what God decrees. We pray for obedience to follow what God commands. And we pray for obedience to cherish what God promises. That is the first essential ingredient of mountain-moving prayer. The second essential ingredient comes out in verse 25, forgiveness. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, here's what you're to do. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so this forgiveness is an attitude of heart. What precisely does it look like? Firstly, it is the withholding of revenge, whereby our desire for personal revenge, our desire to give as good as we got or received, is removed. And withholding revenge, we mortify anger. That anger that arises out of our our sense and our feeling of entitlement and rights. And once we mortify anger, we cultivate love. That is a a, a loving disposition toward the individual in view. And having cultivated love, we render good. This is the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus says is to mark us as his children, as his followers. And this is the forgiveness which is an essential ingredient when it comes to mountain-moving faith. Prayer. Why is this forgiveness so important? 
Let me give you a few reasons. The fifth brings us back to verse 25. Reason number one is this. An unwillingness to forgive destroys the closest of relationships. It's true in a marriage. It's true in the relationship between parents and children, among siblings, closest friends, in the context of the church. An unwillingness to forgive destroys the closest of relationships. Two, an unwillingness to forgive breaks the door to the heart, leaving it wide open for other sins to enter. Can you imagine leaving the front door of your house open during the night? What are you inviting? You're inviting all sorts of critters in, aren't you? That is what an unforgiving heart is doing. We, we have crashed down the doors of our hearts, and we have opened them up to all sorts of sin and evil. Three, an unforgiving heart prevents spiritual growth and maturity. Notice, I did not say it inhibits or impedes or slows down spiritual growth and maturity. No, according to the word of God, an unforgiving heart stops spiritual growth and maturity. It renders spiritual growth impossible. As a matter of fact, if we were to take a survey, just here this morning, the group gathered here, and if we were to, we were to pinpoint those who are, 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 would, would describe themselves as struggling and stagnant in terms of spiritual growth, in the vast majority of cases, I assure you, we can go back in time and we can pinpoint something or other in your life and in your experience that you will not let go of, something you are harboring, a resentment that sits and it festers and you believe before God you are justified to feel that way. Friend, that does not merely slow down your spiritual growth. It ends it. Do you understand that? Do we grasp that? Where there is an unforgiving heart, it's just not that there is little growth. There is no growth. It stops right there. Why? Because an unwillingness to forgive reveals what? A lack of poverty of spirit. It reveals a lack of brokenness. It reveals a lack of humility. And where there is no humility before God, there is no seeking after God. And where there is no seeking after God, there is no pursuit of holiness. And where there is no pursuit of holiness, there is no growth. An unwillingness to forgive prevents spiritual growth and maturity. Four, an unwillingness to forgive reveals deep-rooted pride. Five, this brings us back to our text. An unwillingness to forgive belittles God's grace, as displayed in the gospel. Jesus teaches us that clearly in that wonderful parable in Matthew chapter 18. You have a king. He has a servant. The servant owes him, let's say, a million dollars. Can't pay it. No hope under heaven of ever paying it. And so he pleads for mercy and forgiveness. And the king forgives him his debt, wipes it away. That servant goes out. First man he encounters is someone who owes him $10. What does he do? throws him in jail. The king hears of it. He is irate. And he takes that first servant and he throws him in jail. The Lord Jesus applies the parable as follows. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Christian, understand this. Mercy experienced is mercy bestowed. Always. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mercy experienced is always mercy bestowed. The mercy of God breaks us, making us what? Fountains of mercy. So do you struggle to forgive someone who has criticized you? 
No one has ever criticized you, you say. You need to turn up the volume. We get criticized all the time. Do you struggle to forgive someone who has criticized you? You must remember God has forgiven you for blaspheming his name. Do you struggle to forgive someone who has wronged you? We must remember God has forgiven us for disobeying and completely disregarding his word. Do you struggle to forgive someone who has abandoned you? We must remember that God has forgiven us for abusing his glory. Do we struggle to forgive someone who has injured us? We must remember that God has forgiven us for murdering his son. Mercy experienced is always mercy bestowed. John Owen writes, our forgiving others will not procure forgiveness for ourselves. It doesn't buy it from God. But are not forgiving others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven. A heart that is unwilling to forgive is a heart, and I'll state it clearly, it is a heart untouched by the grace of God. Because mercy experienced for the third time is always mercy bestowed. Let me end with a word of exhortation. As a matter of fact, three words of exhortation. The first is a word of caution from the lips of Christ himself. Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's verse 26 that is in some of the translations, but is absent from the ESV. It's true. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. J.C. Ryle warns, it is sad, sad to see how much bitterness and spite, and hardness, and unkindness there is among us. Yet there are few duties so strongly enforced in the scriptures as this duty. And few, the neglect of which, so clearly shuts a man out of the kingdom of God. Let me repeat Christ's warning. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's a word of caution. Here's a word of counsel. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the cry of the publican. That if we're going to forgive like this, if we're going to pray like this, and our prayers are to bear these two essential ingredients of faith and forgiveness, the starting point is humility. Therefore, the starting point is the gospel. Therefore, the starting point is our own depravity. It is coming to grips with our own sinfulness and understand here is the basis and the foundation of our relationship by which we approach God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it is through the gospel alone that I approach Almighty God. It is clothed and bathed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone that I approach Almighty God. This cultivates poverty of spirit. This cultivates humility. And prayer is always fueled by humility. I'll say it now, friend, and I can say it because I know it from experience in my own life. The greatest impediment to prayer, the cause of our struggle with prayer, the reason why we find it at times so difficult to pray, do you know what it is? It is nothing else but our pride. Prayer is fueled by humility. And humility is fueled by the gospel. 
And these two essential ingredients of mountain-moving faith, they will never be found apart from a heart that is humbled and broken before God in the light of the gospel. That is a word of counsel. And then thirdly, let me give you a word of comfort. According to what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 15, he tells us that the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are indeed the sons of God. Begs the question, How does the Holy Spirit witness with our spirit? How does the Holy Spirit testify with our spirit that we are indeed the sons of God? Paul tells us. The Spirit causes us to cry. Abba, Father. Which is what? The Spirit causes us to pray. Pray. Prayer is the evidence of sonship. Prayer is the evidence that the Father has received us through the mediating work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God, we are brought into the presence of God, by which we cry, Abba, Father. Thomas Watson says, Prayer is the soul's breathing itself into the bosom of his heavenly Father. What privilege is this? We often don't think of it in these terms, but understand this, please, that the blessing, the privilege of prayer was purchased at Calvary's cross. Christ purchased many things at the cross. We think at times strictly in terms of our forgiveness. True. Praise God. He purchased much more beside, including our relationship now with God and this blessing, this privilege of approaching Him, crying out, Abba, Father. An old hymn, but a good one. Behold what love, what boundless love the Father hath bestowed on sinners lost, that we should be now called the sons of God. No longer far from Him, but now, by precious blood made nigh, accepted in the well-beloved, near to God's heart we lie. The evidence of which is prayer. And the Spirit of God by which we approach Almighty God as our Abba Father. There is comfort for the soul. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would incline our hearts to these things. We pray that we would count our blessings, count our gifts, count our privileges, that we would understand the magnitude of the cross and the significance of all that was accomplished and transpired there. We pray that we would revel in our relationship with you uh, through the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We thank you and praise you for these great realities. Uh, We confess our sin and we confess our hard-heartedness. Pray that you would bend our wills and soften our hearts. We pray that you would incline us in far greater measure, day by day, heavenward. Pray that you would take your word now and uh, bless it to us as you have promised to do. Promise that it will not return void, but that it will reap a great and rich harvest. And we pray that there might be a harvest today in our hearts and in our lives. And we seek this from you in the name of Christ. Amen.